Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we are talking to Yemena Talia, who is, works in the charity sector, but that doesn't do enough justice. So uh, I'll pass over and say hi to Yemena. Hi Yemena, how are you doing? Hi Ben, hi Dean. Um, yes, so my name is Yemena. Um, I work in the international development NGO sector um, and currently I'm splitting my time between two small charities in the UK. Um, I'm a CEO of a small charity that supports um, survivors of human trafficking in India. And then I also do some grants management and fundraising work for another charity um, that runs a hospital in Haiti, as well as some maternity and disability programs in South Sudan and in the refugee camps of Uganda. That's um, quite a lot of, of stuff to cover and really sort of impactful work that you're doing. So um, hopefully we can get through some really interesting chat around those. Um, but I suppose the first question is, is, is this something you imagined yourself doing growing up? Um, or did you have a different trajectory in mind when you were sort of younger? Yeah, um, I think when I was younger, well, my mum always thought I was going to be a solicitor. I don't know if that's everyone's mum. <laughs> and I think I wanted to be a um, foreign correspondent journalist who went to all these exciting countries and, um, and you know, I, I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed travel and adventure and those were the things that I was really into um, and I think the international development and the charity aspects came a bit later on um, but I think there's kind of similar um, fundamental ideas behind both um, both areas of work um, so 
so yeah I think that was the journey in a nutshell I'm sure there was a lot of a lot more complex um turnarounds and and swings and roundabouts to it but but yeah um foreign correspondent journalist was the dream when I was young was that just as a as a way were you looking for a way to travel and that seemed like the best way to travel and not necessarily to the predictable places yes I think so and I think also just the love of writing um so I I think I saw that as a as a career that would combine those two and I've I've since I've met a few women who've worked in conflict areas as as correspondents uh, which has been quite interesting it's been quite a recent development and I um, I met someone um, who worked closely with um, Mary Colvin in Syria, etc. Um, and I met someone who worked at The Guardian as, as a, a conflict area correspondent who has since founded her own charity um, supporting women who undergo FGM. So it's been quite interesting meeting people, especially women who are in that area of work now at this stage in my career. Of thinking back to those dreams of a young girl. I mean, I suppose if you are in those situations, it must be almost inhumane to not notice what's going on and, and want to take some kind of action against the situations you see unfold in front of you when you are exposed to it like that. So yeah, I suppose it'd be amazing if if correspondents weren't do it, trying to do something about the situations they see. Yeah, I think I can't, to be honest, even imagine um, how difficult and and kind of mentally challenging that line of work is. I mean, there are challenges to what we do in my line of work and when we go out there and you have to be prepared to meet what you meet. But, um, but I think the kind of the aspect of danger in that um, journalism and that area of journalism is a bit more present at all times so and especially for women of course um still an area not not many women are in but also kind of personal safety aspects in 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 that front as well so um having sort of thought about a sort of foreign correspondent and the writing um what did like what educationally did you end up doing and and then where did you end up uh, going sort of after education and college and that kind of thing? Mm. Um, so I I did a foundation course on international development before university and I did that in Finland. Um, and as part of that course, we did a um, two-month um, trip to India um, where we wrote some articles and visited some local NGOs, etc. And then I chose to do um, social anthropology um, at university. So I did a joint degree of social anthropology, sociology and gender studies. Um, and I think the gender aspect for me was more, um, I was quite interested and keen to work on women's rights issues. Um, so the degree that I chose was um, something that I saw would combine both the international work and women's rights um however life happens and after university I needed money and um I ended up in the corporate sector doing events in London 
um, after a short um, internship in Geneva for for putting together events for the UN and the NGO sector. Um, so I did kind of legal events and corporate conferences, etc., for a few years until I then ended up in the charity sector eventually. Was it something during that job in events that gave you a look at kind of what you wanted to do for the future? Was there a particular point where you just thought, right, this is it, I need to switch now, I want to go into the charity sector and do something different? I think at that point it was already there and I think before my degree it was already there. I think it was always um, the plan that I would go into the world of charities. It was just a detour I had to take because I had to make a living. But for me, um, I think, you know, from the foreign correspondence plans and how I ended up wanting to work for the charity sector, um, there was a few moments when I was a teenager that kind of clarified that for me. Um, my parents liked to travel a lot. Um, and whilst they didn't do it in any kind of adventurous way, they did a lot of package holidays, but they took um, took me to a lot of interesting places. Um, and um, I think I was about 14 when we were traveling around Malaysia and Singapore and we were in Kuala Lumpur and we stayed in this um, lovely four or five star hotel. Um, I think my parents have saved a while for this big trip and we, we stayed in this beautiful, luxurious hotel, um, fairly high up on a high rise. And um, I spent a lot of time on this window cell seat looking out of the window and looking at the views and right next to this hotel as is the case in a lot of developing countries um next to luxury there's you know less less fortunate uh, ways of living and um next to this hotel there was a huge slum um and for me i still kind of remember that experience and those moments quite profoundly kind of sitting there spending a lot of time looking out that window and looking at where we were and looking at where those people were right next to us and how insane that was, how unfair that was and how unjust that was and, like, what had we done to deserve our places in the world? Um, and for a 14-year-old, I think that's... It, it just affected me hugely, affected my kind of view of the world and and... It didn't necessarily clarify anything. It just brought more questions in of how how are we allowing this to happen, um, etc. So I remember that moment very clearly, um, and I think it was the start of something. And you mentioned, I mean, it sounds profound. You said it, it was profound, and it raised a lot of questions. And did you ask those questions of your parents at that time? Was it something that you talked about with them as well? No, I think... Um, that's not necessarily the type of relationship I had with my parents. Um, but I think at that point, I kind of realised that I wanted to learn more about all of that. Um, and I think my future um, studies and future interests were were affected by that. So I started 
looking into kind of what I would do after graduating high school and what that high school, I call it, <laughs> in, in Finland, the similar equivalent. Um, and I think from, from those moments, it kind of started, yeah, I started carrying that, those thoughts with me, what might happen and what I might want to focus on in the future. It's amazing that effectively one moment as a teenager is what led has has led your journey through life and your career um and i'm I'm excited to find out more <laughs> yeah because it sounds like obviously that those moments and those reflections kind of informed what you want went on to study and do at university um you've obviously talked about then that that challenge i think a lot of us find is your you find might find a passion or purpose but that passion or purpose doesn't always lend itself to paying bills straight mm. up and you have to kind of grapple with that um but obviously now you have found a way to kind of combine those as obviously sort of having a profession which allows you to start addressing those when you made that transition from events to to charities had you learned sort of better by that point about how you could use your time and and sort of focus on some of the the areas that you wanted to focus on um I think I had to make some compromises to be honest because um I think the at the time of um studying for my degree etc I think the idea was that I would be doing a lot of field work in you know Africa or wherever it might be and and doing a program work um, for NGOs in in the field. Um, whereas um, by the time I'd kind of worked in events for a while um, and was in the position to start applying for um, charity jobs, it's it's not so easy, firstly, to get into the programmatic side of things. I mean, you know, it's a competitive world, but also I think my key skills in in the work of employment were in in events and in operational things so um i continued to be in events but in the charity sector so i took those skills and i took them to the sector i wanted to be in um and i worked for a couple of charities that weren't their causes weren't necessarily a huge interest to me or huge passion to me personally Um, but I gained that experience of working in charities from there. So it was a bit of a long journey, to be honest. Um, and then I think at some point I had to just adjust that whole, what does it mean to me working in this sector? Is it being in the field and, you know, digging drenches myself, or is it working in the office and you know, doing the support work or, or running the charity? Um, and of course then, when you have a family as well it kind of comes to play on what what are you able to do and, and where where do you want to spend your time so um compromises along the way always always yeah. uh, so where you mentioned uh working in haiti and india and uh obviously you got some connections in east africa so when you started working with these charities did that begin to allow you to to start exploring these places a little bit more and, and getting yeah. out in the field even though that wasn't your primary role yeah it did and even before that I mean I've worked for other international development charities before my current ones um 
and I um, I've done some field visits and and some travel in in the project countries. Um, so uh, previously, I worked for for charities that work in Africa, and I've I've been to um, either kind of assess the local need, so we can translate those needs into projects and fundraising back in the UK or in Finland or wherever I was based at the time, um, or going back and assessing the impact of our projects, so we can report back to funders and you know, uh, our stakeholders and make sure that what we're doing is actually impactful and, and we're not just running projects for the sake of, you know, existing as a charity. Um, so, so yes, um, and I think at the moment, um, considering I still have a fairly young family, um, and well, of course, at the moment, nothing's, nothing's of the sort is happening, but, but I think um, I go out about twice a year um, and spend some time out in whether it's in Haiti or Africa or India, and and I, you know, I mean that's kind of the reason why I am in this line of work. When you're out there and you see what's what's happening and what your work has um, partly been, you know, making an impact on and and you know those lives that have been touched and and if I'm honest um part of it is also for me personally that's getting out there and and having an adventure as well and seeing kind of you know these places that I wouldn't normally be able to travel to um so those couple of couple of weeks a year they kind of keep me ticking over (laughs) And you mentioned you're a CEO of a small charity. It's called Adventure Ashram. Could you yeah. maybe give us a bit more info about what the charity does and perhaps about one of those trips and to give us an example of the kinds of work that you've been involved in when you've when you've been yeah. able to go in person? Sure. So Adventure Ashram is a bit of a it's a bit of a niche charity in that it was actually set up by a group of um, adventure motorbikers. Um, so initially it was set up by by these folks because um, they did these adventure biking trips into um, different countries and India was one of them and they came across um, this need and these projects that they wanted to support um, so this this was before my time um, but that's how it initially started um, and I've been with them for about three years now and what we there are a few different kind of lines of projects that we we support but um the main thing is um supporting survivors of of human trafficking in in southern india and we work with a local partner that's established down there um and they run they run two safe houses for survivors um there's a, a safe house for girls and women and then another safe house for underage boys um and what they do is um they um stage brothel rescues or they take in um women or young boys from from the streets um and provide them a safe place to live um help them access education etc um and so we we support all that work financially but then we run our own projects alongside all of this ongoing work and those projects are around kind of providing vocational um, support. So we've 
we've established a mechanics workshop and there's um there's a bakery workshop and a beautician workshop for these survivors so that they can learn skills that will help them become financially independent in the future and maybe you know kind of prepare them in for mainstream society outside of those safe house walls in the future um so that's kind of the key area of adventure ashram's work um and as far as those trips go i mean i've visited the safe houses and spent time with the um well with the survivors and and with the directors of those safe houses and um i think i mean the work they do is amazing um and it's wonderful to see the you know opportunities provided um but i think the kind of the things that i remember best are seeing the videos and seeing the footage from the rescue missions because they are quite something um and um i think you know a lot of these brothels are run by trafficking gangs and they are quite ingenious and they they know what they're doing and in a lot of these rescues you know they might be um fake walls erected on bathrooms where they you know if there's a raid they hide the girls behind these fake walls so you know no one knows they're there and obviously they're frightened and and keep silence and and seeing all this footage and it's yeah it's quite harrowing um and obviously then seeing the help and the support that the girls that we girls and women and boys that we help get is fantastic but it also brings it home that it's just a small 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 fraction of a sense of people that we are able to help as a small charity and trafficking is a massive global issue that so i mean the, this obviously the impact on, on those individual lives of people that you have managed to save should not be underestimated and i, and I mm. hope you all give yourself the credit you deserve with that but i suppose it's inevitable that you start looking at what more can be done and the scale mm-hmm. of the problem um is that is that one of the biggest challenges of working in the sector that you do that kind of wanting to always tackle more and and there being sort of scarily insurmountable challenges to take on yeah i mean it's well i, I suppose that's a question for all of us is kind of when do you um look at the world with the kind of fatalistic lens and when do you kind of how do you remain optimistic and and um um but i think it is a challenge but i think you know it's you're not you're not able to just kind of look at look at the massive problems of the world and take them all on you need to kind of focus your your work and your projects and your impact onto what you can achieve as a small charity so uh, i suppose it is challenging but i wouldn't say it's necessarily the biggest challenge in in our sector um it's always it's always positive and it's always great to expand and it's and grow and and increase our impact and increase our reach um and there are you know there are larger charities that are reaching um huge amount more people than than um ours are but um but i think the issue underlining that question and 
um, so many others for small charities is funding. And, you know, that's the frustration and that's the, that's the biggest challenge I think small charities tackle with, especially right now, um, is, you know, we could be doing so much more and we want to be doing so much more, but even delivering what we are doing now is at risk. Um, and, you know, even getting the funding to uh, maintain our services is a lot of hard work. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, if something keeps me up at night, it's that. Now, obviously, we've hinted at it a few times that we are recording this at the end of 2020. Um, and the year's been difficult for a number of ways. But obviously, from what I understand, it, it's hit charities very hard this year in terms of funding. Um, has that been your experience like compared to 2019 into 2020? Has, has the funding become ever more challenging? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's especially the case for international organisations. Um, I think... Um, I've done some consultancy work for kind of UK-based um, organisations that deliver their services in the UK before and, and having chatted to them. I mean, everyone's finding it hard, um, but there's a lot more funding available for charities that provide services in the UK. And a lot of the kind of COVID-specific funds are just for UK-based projects, etc. And I think the international development sector has kind of been, to be honest, forgotten in all of this. Um, and not only that, then obviously the UK aid budget is being slashed, um, etc. So it is really difficult. And um, it was only a couple of months ago um, that there was there was a few articles in the kind of mainstream newspapers about um, small international development charities in the UK. And it said that over 50% of them are looking to close their doors in the next 12 months. And I kind of, you know, I understand to a degree, it's not, it's not how I personally think, but I understand to a degree that whole, you know, help where you are and help your neighbor, of course. Um, and, I understand the thinking that people kind of see that, you know, you want to help others within our borders or however however it may go. Um, but of course, you know, being in the sector that I am, <laughs> um, I, I see the need and I feel the need elsewhere. And I also kind of think that, you know, for example, with the, with the COVID crisis, you know, none of us are safe until we're all safe. No, it doesn't matter if if we get rid of COVID altogether within the UK, unless you know we close our boards indefinitely, and that's that. Um, you know, as long as there's COVID in Africa, none of us are going to be safe. Um, so, the I think the kind of global thinking has suffered immensely in the last twelve months. Um, and with that, yes, funding for small charities, small international de development charities is just barely existent at the moment. So that means 
obviously adjusting and uh, readjusting programs and trying to look at how we're going to navigate this. Ben and I both have a background in education and I'm just struck by your example earlier when you were on this holiday and you were 14 and you saw the difference in what you're experiencing versus the people just across the street. And I'm wondering, is do you think there's a gap in the way that we approach these types of topics and the topic of international development as a whole at school? Do you think we could do more so that people did have a wider view of the world as a whole rather than just uh, defaulting to saying, okay, we need to help people who are here first? Mm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not an expert in education or what, what is, what, how it's approached right now, but... Um, I would assume, yes, <laughs> I would assume it could be done better. Um, and it's not just, it's not even just the international development aspect. I think it's just the whole kind of being a global citizen and right. and learning about um, other perspectives. You know, like, as you know, I, I wasn't raised in the UK. Um, I was raised in Finland, but I've lived in a couple of other countries as well and I think what I've found everywhere I've lived is everything we learn is very kind of uh, it's very biased I mean you know whether it's the whole uh, we've got the best healthcare system in the world that you hear in every country you go to (laughs) or if it's um, um, a certain way of celebrating you know a certain war or the outcome of it or you know whatever it might be whatever we learn is very kind of comes comes from one perspective if that's that's what I think um and that's why how I've kind of felt in these different countries that I've lived in um and I find it quite I find I find it quite fascinating um and I'm quite intriguing that you can you do you do come across those same arguments in every country. I, I remember, so I did an exchange year in Australia before um, before university, etc. I was 17, 18, and I remember so clearly, like my host family, you know, introducing me to Australian culture and, and emphasising certain elements of the Australian culture as being the best in the world. And I was thinking, well, that's exactly what they say about these same things in Finland. And that's exactly what they say, you know, in the UK about the NHS, etc. And it's, it's, you know, it's lovely to a degree. But at the same time, I don't know, maybe we, we should look at the world and go, well, maybe, maybe we're not the best at everything. You know, maybe they are doing things OK in Namibia or here or there and learn from each other. That, that's a really interesting concept, isn't it, around... Outside perceptions, I think particularly Africa seems to suffer from this mm. in my own experiences. I, I know my own children, when we talk about charity, will sometimes kind of blanket the whole continent of Africa as mm. looking a certain way or or there's a certain situation going on. And, and we try and tackle that the, with that. The live aid syndrome. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, that this idea that kind of there's – there's no one doing great things in certain places or everyone's doing great things out in one place. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to do a, a trip to West, uh, so uh, East Africa. So Tanzania a few years ago where we went and played football, but that sounds similar to how adventure ashram was set up that, um, this guy was 
doing a bit of teaching out in Tanzania and on a day trip out to a local town called Mahengi, he stumbled across an orphanage mm. and he was fortunate enough that his his family had a bit of money and they set up a charity. Um, and that orphanage was based around um, children that generally got abandoned because the parents just didn't quite know how to care for them, whether they mm. had sort of disabilities of various kinds. So we went out there and did a trip and that obviously that was kind of my first proper chance to to sort of see Africa and you just see it very differently mm. uh, it's not characterized by the things that you saw in live aid as you say but, uh, but my question really is you and I both um, live in in uh, sort of sorry West Sussex area and have got young children and I know I'm just kind of debating how I give my own children a kind of balanced global view um I mean, I've also got two boys, so there's a there's another aspect here about um, yeah. about how they treat other people as they go out and about in the world. But I just wondered if, you, like, with your own perspective, like how you're looking at sort of giving your own children that perspective that you got in Malaysia when you're sitting in that hotel window. Oh, Ben. I... Parenting advice. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the person for it. <laughs> none, of, none of us are, but we would all like to share. No, that is a tricky one, isn't it? Um, I think I think it's just having these things in the conversation. Um, I mean, I suppose the world of our children growing up and the information that they have, you know, the access to information and all around their fingertips is very different from how we grew up anyway um but yes it is I think that's one of the fundamental questions of parenting is how do we raise good people <laughs> and um and I certainly struggle with it and and try to kind of keep that in the forefront of thinking I think you know we because of what I do, I think these conversations are present in, in my house, maybe more than others, I don't know. Um, and, you know, especially when I'm getting ready to go on my trips and we kind of talk about what's going to happen and where I'm going and when I come back and show pictures and and kind of trying to, trying to keep it balanced. Um, but certainly, you know, I mean, we have those moments when when one of my children goes boys don't do ballet or say something like that and it's like right let's have a chat about this <laughs> um as you know all parents do um so I don't really have an answer to that it's just a case of doing our best and and leading by example and showing what what we see um that whole kind of the thing you mentioned about um, Tanzania being being different from from the images that are portrayed, and and the same is the case of for whole of Africa. Really, I think that's something that I can fairly easily kind of show my children through my trips, and and you know, show pictures, and they're like, oh, it's so green and it's so lush, and it looks like a jungle, and it's like, yes, it's not all a desert, and da da da, and. No, those conversations at that age-appropriate level. <laughs> Was there a point where you take your your children on a trip with you? Oh, I would you love to. I would absolutely love to. Um, now, my son is only four, um, mm-hmm. and he's um, uh, 
bit wild so i would be more scared of well i would be scared for africa to be honest <laughs> um it's the it's the safety aspect more than anything else but yeah absolutely when when things return to some kind of normality hopefully um we can we can look at that but it's it is interesting you know how we how we protect our children from these things and then um so the other charity that i work for that works in haiti and and in south sudan and uganda um the founder and ceo of that charity with his wife and their two small children have li lived in haiti and lived in uganda and taken their kids to um north uganda for weeks and stayed there locally etc so it's you know it's perfectly doable it's just we kind of uh, we we scare ourselves don't we and and we have these of course we you know want to protect our children but and i wouldn't take them to south sudan right now but you know there is that balance and there is that conversation you need to have with yourself is are my fears grounded or am i just being overprotective and is that you know, founded on reality. I suppose the the before that point, there's also just hoping that they might challenge any misconceptions that they hear um, mm. as well, isn't it? That I think that's what we've maybe another learning from 2020 we've all had is is tackling things that we see, maybe not being a passive um, and sort of uh, letting things pass by that we might internally not agree with, but always saying yeah. something as well. It's hard, though, isn't it? The whole trying to avoid conflict um, and situations of conflict, even if you know you're kind of on the right side of history with what you want to say, um, it's difficult. I think with all of these things, if you are thinking consciously about them, that's a good starting point, right? And that's the starting point for those conversations at home or with students in school or even with family members. I just want to jump one second. You mentioned we we mentioned that you're the CEO of Adventure Ashram. You just mentioned in in this last bit here that you work with another charity as well called Hope Health Action. Mm -hmm. And for them you're the grants and trust coordinator. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to find out more about what does your day-to-day -day work look like in both of those roles. You talked about oh. kind of where the funding goes and supporting the local teams. And sometimes you get to go on trips to actually see some of this work take place in person. But what is your actual day-to-day -day normally? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, it's quite um, it's quite a challenge, to be honest, kind of juggling two part-time roles, one of which is a CEO role, which means by nature that it isn't part-time. So I'm quite busy. <laughs> um, but um, for the CEO role, I mean, it's anything from – um, governance and um, compliance with charity law and, um, you know, the charity commission requirements, etc. It's, um, it's a, you know, some of it can be really just office based paperwork, um, you know, reporting to funders. Um, some of it is planning new initiatives, whether it's new programs that we can deliver in 
in India or whether it's new fundraising initiatives. Uh, right now, all of that is a little bit iffy because a lot of that would in normal times be events, etc., that we would plan for our supporters. Um, but then also, yes, approaching funders, whether it's trust funders in the UK, whether it's international funders, whether it's corporate funders, or if it's, um, you know, sending newsletters to individuals who are giving us monthly donations, etc. So it's basically for the Adventure Ashram role is kind of anything and everything to run a charity. And because we're so small, there's only three of us. Um, so we can't really just have a defined kind of this is my area of work and that's it we all need to kind of dip in although you know one of us is a is a finance manager so um so they have a more defined role um but yes yeah, so there's a lot there's a lot more probably than people think to running these organizations even when they are small because you do have to do your communications you do have to do your compliance and governance you you have to do your fundraising you have to do your project delivery and etc cetera, etc cetera. hr all of that <laughs> um but then um for hope health action my role is a lot more simple and clear i go out to um trust funders uh, in the uk uh, internationally or in the us and I um, put together funding bids. Um, so I kind of package whatever it is we're doing in Haiti or Uganda or South Sudan, and I try and make it an attractive project for a specific funder. Um, and then I kind of liaise with the funders, do reporting to them, etc. cetera. So, um, so that's, fairly, that's fairly straightforward. Um, but yes, yeah, so a weekly, I, I kind of jump from one role to another and try and keep them in in their little cubby holes in my head so so um I don't get them mixed up and um yeah get on with whatever the task at hand is at any given time and it's clear this has been a passion through your life since you were a student um and so I'd love to know what you enjoy most about what you do I can imagine that at times it can feel difficult, not just because of the amount of work, but also the things that you're having to think about. And you mentioned the videos being sent to you, for example, mm. which it kind of, you know, must must put you in two minds sometimes. This is a great thing we're doing, but also completely harrowing that this even mm. happened in the first place. So I'd love to hear about what you enjoy the most about, about your work. Well, um, apart from those trips to kind of see the impact and speak to the people and and kind of just see what the result of our work is which I mentioned earlier um I think you know I love those times when we get some wins whether it's a, a grant or whether it's a new supporter or whether it's you know I don't know, somebody writing to us and telling us how touched they've been with our work or whatever it might be. Um, so those things, yes. But then also I think, I think, you know, like you said, yes, it's harrowing as well. And you face those things and you go, well, what we're doing is barely scratching the surface. But then you are faced with the question of, well, 
what am I going to do then? Am I going to do nothing because I can't solve this problem? Or am I going to carry on trying to do something here? Um, and I think for me, I'm, I don't want to go back to the corporate world, if I put it bluntly. Um, it's for me, the kind of the purpose of what I'm doing is, is in our impact. And, you know, it's a complex world. And I could, I, and, you know, anyone could argue that Google, for example, is probably saving a lot more lives than we are, because they can afford to give big grants or give, you know, corporate support to a lot of charities. Um, so I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, in the corporate world, people aren't making a difference. Um, but what gets me out of bed personally is that, you know, knowing that there is um, there is this higher purpose that we're working for. Absolutely. I, I love that. I love what you said about do something uh, because I think people can be easily set back by an overwhelm of the size of a challenge to be faced. And if, if everyone felt that and some people didn't just move forward and, and do something, like that's yeah. something that is always going to be really, really positive. As you say, yeah. the challenges are huge. And you know what? The kind of the social media and and that whole kind of climate of conversation does nothing to aid that kind of thinking because you know you go out there and you say I donated to Oxfam and there's twenty people saying, well, why are you doing that? Why aren't you donating to the homeless charity down the road? Right. Or you know you're vegetarian and you've been told that you're not doing enough because you're not vegan or whatever it might be there's you know there's always there's there are always a handful of people who are happy to criticize your choices so I think that also can become quite overwhelming for people and they go well what's the point of doing anything um or you know if we can't completely solve this problem then why bother do you, do you find with that particular challenge that around like Adventure Ashram being a, a small um, focused charity that actually the storytelling around that and engaging people with that becomes a little bit easier because it is very tangible of we work directly, these are the impacts of your money. And, and does that help in any way with with sort of getting people on board with the yeah, with the I think I think the I think people like the fact that it is a small organization and we got very direct links to the people we're helping, um, and there's not this massive bureaucracy and we're not slow to move because of that or because of a lot of red tape, um, and so there's a lot of transparency uh, transparency that comes with that. Um, so I think our supporters certainly, you know love that and value that and they feel that they're part of our organization they're not just you know another person out of a thousand who gives a bit of money every month so we have those conversations and that's that's kind of our usp to a degree um but you know there's other other people who who see the impact of a or a larger organization and they feel they want to be a part of that and that's all you know it's all good like like we said let's just do something <laughs> certainly that um in terms of like your you, I, obviously your experience of the corporate world probably informs your decision that you know you don't want to go back there um 
But if if you were to go back to sort of teenage Yevano and give her advice, whether that's here on holiday in Malaysia or wherever it may be, it what what tips would you give to your your teenage self now that you've sort of know what you know? <sighs> I think well, I think um I would still love to experience, even now, I would still love to experience that whole kind of staying out there in the field for a while and delivering the work myself. Um, So I think, you know, if I was able to go back, I would probably encourage myself to get that in, even if it meant that, you know, I'd struggle financially or, you know, I'd have to make some different choices but get that in before you know you start a family or similar um as far as the otherwise I think it's just you know following your heart at the end of the day like I ended up in a completely different sector to what I thought I wanted to do for a fair few years but life kind of just led me to where I wanted to be eventually because it was in me um, and it was what I wanted even if I forgot it for a while whilst I was doing something completely different so I think the whole is such a cliche isn't it but you know follow your hearts and and you know, don't give up on that I think you're a great example of that right it is that that has always been in your heart and so longer term that that is what has come together and so I, I guess as we wrap up one question I'm I have for you then, perhaps Ben has one more as well, is let's fast forward 10 years. You know, COVID has taken over 2020. It will probably dominate much of the narrative of 2021 as well. Mm. In 10 years, where would you like to be or what would you like to be doing or or what would you have achieved, do you hope, in 10 years' time? um, I don't know is the honest answer to that. And... I, I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and say to to the young people listening out there that it's okay not to know. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I, know. I think, you know, I think at the moment I still got a passion for this line of work. Um, I'm not necessarily going to be in these organisations in 10 years' time or in these roles in 10 years' time. Um, but right now it's it's the only thing that I feel the passion for as far as kind of career choices go. So I'm, I'm happy carrying on with this. I also have a huge passion for the smaller organisations, so I can't necessarily see myself, you know, at a huge international charity. Um, so right now I'm quite happy. <laughs> um, I think, yeah... I think time will tell. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. But I think it's okay not to know, even at this this ripe age. <laughs> 100%. For what it's worth, I'm the same as you. I could not tell you what I'm going to do in 10 years. I couldn't answer that question that I just asked you. And, uh, well, yeah, I completely That was a bit horrible of you then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely it agree that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm similar in that I... Uh, you know, I, I think I try and, and be in the moment a bit and just be present in doing what yeah. I'm doing now and make sure that I enjoy life in some way. 
um, as I do that. And that enjoyment can be through passion or purpose or um, yeah, and whilst this, it can be hard sometimes to, like I said before, you know, a lot of this work can be sitting in an office and it could be, you could be working for anyone or anything really, it's the same, isn't it? Um, so you have to remind yourself of that passion every now and then, and especially now, because, you know, we're all isolated and we're working away from each other, so you don't get that um you don't that get that kind of passion. I was going to say it's infectious. It's not probably the right thing to say at this time and age. But, you know, <laughs> being around those other people who are passionate about the same cause, um, that's where it rubs off and you feed from each other. And, and, you know, that's ideal. And we don't get that at the moment. So it's really hard sometimes to remember that I love doing this and I love doing this because of A, B and C. Um, so you kind of have to put together some strategies of reminding yourself of that. But despite that, it's there and you kind of just need to dig it. It comes back to something that I think comes up pretty much, maybe not if every episode, but uh, most episodes is, goes back to the question we often ask kids, right? So you round at an event, well, when you used to be able to go round to people's houses and you sort of, you're talking to other people's children and you go, you idly go, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which mm. is that question that ultimately I think we're addressing, it's probably prompted us to make the podcast is, what an irrelevant question that is, mm. um, for, for especially for our own children these days. Um, and it, it's Jamie Cassatt is probably the, the reference point who kind of flipped that question to like, say, asking people, what problem do you want to solve? Mm. Or, or more around that. And maybe that's the, this the little bit of advice for Dean back at it. Stop asking mm-hmm. that question. <laughs> yeah, and, then, yeah. and that's it. Yeah, I think you know you've talked about it before. How you know most of us, and certainly not our kids, are going to be in the same job or even in the same sector for all their lives, and and that's fantastic, isn't it? We get these opportunities to try different things and and apply our skills to different problems, like you said. Um, which is not necessarily what previous generations were really able to, you know, do as much as we will be able to. Um, I think it's awesome. Just to finally wrap up, if the prospect allows itself, um, where would you be heading back to to India, Haiti and South Sudan in 2021 potentially? And, and sort of what? What were those trips potentially looking for? Yes, absolutely. Um, So the last trip I did was to um, Uganda and South Sudan um, a year ago around this time. Um, And we we did a lot of good good work and a lot of kind of assessing the situation. And there's a lot of projects that have come to life since um, and it would be wonderful to see those projects now and where they are now and and be able to kind of go back and, and assess that. And similarly to, to um, projects in India and Haiti, um, I'm not sure if I necessarily see that happening the way things are going at the moment. Um, and that provides its own challenges because communication, uh, well, it is sometimes difficult and there are, you know, some cultural differences in in 
the level of communication that's expected back and forth and and you know kind of trying to translate that information that maybe some you know stuffy funders somewhere in, in London might need from a project on the field somewhere in Haiti for example you know it's it can be quite difficult to to sometimes get that statistical data or that bit of information from there so um um so in that sense as well it would be great to go go out and and do those assessment visits myself but but we kind of roll with the punches at the moment don't we <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's probably about fair and then i suppose um i said finally a couple of times but we'll try one more finally mm-hmm. Um, I know you've got a lot of different things going on with Adventure Ashram um, over the coming, I think, into 2022 and beyond. Mm. Um, for anyone that's listened and is about to click on the link to go and explore Adventure Ashram and, and other charities, what would you like them to be aware of in terms of the, the projects you've got in mind and the funding that you're looking to allocate in 2021? Um, yeah, so for Adventure Ashram, I mean, we part of what we do um, is we facilitate um, trips to India, um, and these trips might be cycling tours or they might be motorbiking. Um, and uh, as part of those trips, you can visit the programs that we run there or help run there. Um, now we do have um, some of those coming up if that's something that's of interest to people. We are also um, expanding or we we were due to expand to Thailand in 2020 um, and we were running um, a motorbiking, two-week motorbiking tour of Thailand and as part of that um, visiting a project that we're supporting on the border with Myanmar, supporting um, refugees from Myanmar. Um, now, obviously, that hasn't happened this year, so that's been postponed to um, the end of 21. So, you know, if you're a motorbiker, or even if you're not, there's support vehicles, um, and that's something that would be of interest. It's a fantastic trip. Um, then, yeah, the information is on the Adventure Ashram website. And for Hope Health Action, there's lots happening. <laughs> I mean, the hospital in Haiti is um, it's one of the leading hospitals of North Haiti, um, and we are looking to expand the um, neonatal and maternity wards in the coming years. So there's a lot of work and a lot of support required there to help those those newborn babies and and mums in a country where healthcare systems aren't really are barely operable. Um, and yeah, we're hoping to go back to South Sudan um, as and when the security situation so allows. Um, and we're looking to establish some small health clinics in, in the southern part of the country. So there's there's lots happening. Um, and I am always available to tell more. <laughs> um, we'll put links both to Hope yep. Health Action and Adventure Ashram in the description as well. So please do Thank go find you. out more and, and donate on the websites. Yamuna, it has been so good to chat to you. You are such a calming presence. I've really enjoyed uh, oh, listening to you. I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs>
I've enjoyed listening to you anyway and finding out more about your journey. And um, it's so great. It's actually rare from the people we've spoken to that someone really has had a passion from when they were young um, that has really stayed with them through their lives. Often people get taken on a different tangent, but it's clear that you've always kind of come back to international development and and uh, NGOs and charities, I guess. So Mm -hmm. thanks for taking the time to chat to us today. I really appreciate it. It's been really good to get to know you. Thank you so much. It wasn't as scary as I thought. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can understand why you might think that looking at us, but um, (laughs) it's not too bad. Also, I think there's there's so much there's so much more we could have delved into with international development Mm -hmm. with women's rights that um, so hopefully we can maybe catch up again in the future and uh, and when you've had a chance to maybe do a trip and we can sort of yeah. tag some more on there. But Absolutely. yeah. Have I a... I sorry, I, I was going to say I didn't get a chance to do my feminist rants. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call them rants either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, as a, I, I became slightly more enlightened after uh, reading a couple of books recently. Um, so I wouldn't call it rant. I just call mm-hmm. it my my God, what on earth is going on and why is it still like this? I know, yeah, you recommended a good book to me as well, Ben. I need to to read it. Oh, yeah, Invisible Women by Caroline Corrado Perez. Yeah, I I reference it a lot because it was, uh, as I think I said to you, epiphany for me, probably just confirmation of reality for uh, the other 50% of the population. Mm. Um, but, But really, it's interesting to see all of those um disparities actually born out in data like the what i think would i talk about the car if you and i drive a car i'm safer than you are Mm, yeah yeah all the crash test dummies tested on men is that yeah Yeah, they're they're all the dimensions and weight of of men yeah Um, yeah so lots lots to explore with that as well maybe we'll do a a bonus episode where when when you've read the book you can you can sort of uh, give us your perspective on it. Cool. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great one. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 